You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a B teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast. Today I've got Dr. Bev Meakin. How are you, Bev? You okay? Yeah, fine, thanks. And uh, how is the weather up north? Is it, is, uh, is it still sunny? It's been lovely today. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, just clouded over now, ready for the drop in temperature tomorrow. <laughs> and um, basically we're going to sort of explore about how relationships are formed today. But just to give you a brief insight, uh, Bev is a senior lecturer in counselling at Staffordshire University and is the course leader for the professional postgraduate and master's courses in psychotherapeutic counselling. I thought that was a bit of a tongue twister. I thought, oh, crikey, am I going to get this right? <laughs> and uh, she also has a private practice as a couples counselling supervisor. So um, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, Bev, about, you know, where, you know, brief bio, where you grew up and, you know, what was it like growing up for you? Yes, certainly. Um, I grew up in... A rural village in those times. Uh, it's 12 miles south of Manchester, as my mum always used to say. She didn't like to think that she was living in Manchester because she was very much a country girl and grew up on a farm and uh, grew up with nature all around. And I think um, for me, I had that experience as well. Uh, there were active farms in the village. Uh, the we got our milk from the the farm next door and our eggs and so on. And I went to school just across the road. So it was all very um, small village, but very safe, but also a lot of freedom because uh, we were allowed to just go out down the fields. So it sounds idyllic um, to me, and it was. It was, it was a happy time. Uh, within that, there were certain times when it, it was a little bit... Uh, uncomfortable I'd say like starting school was a big shock Uh, there was no play school or anything like that I should say actually um, to give you a bit of background I am 63 and uh, white British and um, so back in 1960s there wasn't play school you just went from being at home being in this safe environment as I was uh, into school all day every day and that was quite a shock um, and I, I did have a, a bit of a difficult time fitting in there. I always felt a little bit on the edge. Um, and then I got um, I was lucky enough to get a free place to a local grammar school, um, one of the direct grant places that were around that the government provided then. And I just, again, that was a massive shock to go from small village school to to a big school, big grammar school, and I got lost trying to find the dining hall, that sort of thing. Um, but then in, when I was just moving into second year, when I was 12, um, my dad died very suddenly and this just turned my life upside down. It was that kind of moment when you realise actually the worst can and and does happen. And, uh, it was a big shock for everybody, for the whole village. Um, if you imagine a village community where everybody knows everybody else, Mm. And 
uh, a young man, fit, active man of 39, just drops dead at work and leaves three children, uh, 12, 10 and 5. So really um, that shaped my life a lot because I then became... I suppose what I've learned recently through doing my own counselling training is I, I became more worried um, about losing my mum and also missing my dad dreadfully because uh, I'd been very close to him. I think this sort of moves on to sort of um, talking about your research, obviously, with, with relationships. Um, I th- I think what would be really good is to sort of go through your experiences in terms of your work life first, and then we'll go and then we'll dive into and divulge into your research stuff because I think it's important. That story probably also shapes a lot of it as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to go through like yeah, your sort of working life and then family yeah. and how, how it all panned out? Um, so, as I said, I was at, I went to this grammar school um, where they were. Uh, very active in promoting students for going to university. Um, I I did struggle a bit through my teens, I think because of my dad dying. Um, I struggled to concentrate on my work. Um, so I probably didn't achieve as much as I could have done. Um, I really wanted to be a games teacher like you, Al. <laughs> but the school, and I loved sport, played every sport I could. Um, I was on all the teams and I thought, yeah, this is the career for me. But the school said, oh, no, you're really good at biology. You need to go to university. Because in those days, universities didn't do um, sports science degrees as much. It was going to PE college, teacher training college. So they got me to apply to Manchester University Um and I ended up actually at Manchester Polytechnic and did a degree in biology. And after that, I went and worked in a path lab and with uh, bacteriology samples and did that for a couple of years and then left that to, to be a mum, really, and uh, took 12 years out. I was really lucky. No, I didn't. I took eight years out. <laughs> Got my maths wrong there. And um, I was very lucky to have that time out with the children. Uh, unfortunately along the way somewhere when um, my husband and I had the the kids we lost a little bit of our relationship and we went to couple counselling to understand where things had gone wrong but we weren't able to move on together as a couple and um, so that experience of having counselling myself led me to to decided to train as a couple counsellor and that's uh, that was 95 I started training with Relate. And then you moved on after you how long did you spend there doing counselling for? Uh, probably till around 2010 uh, but I, I'd already started getting more into teaching so as I became a more experienced tra- uh, counsellor and supervisor myself I then started mm. training other counsellors and I was lucky enough then to get a, a job at Staffordshire University um, on their counselling courses. And I've been there since uh, 2007. Let's talk about your research, because I think that will probably uh, bind a lot of the stuff you've just said as well in terms of shaping your opinion about things. Um, so, yeah, what, what was your research about? Um, my research centred around a teaching intervention that I use with the counsellors. It's called, I called it the patchwork of practice. And it 
it centres around the idea that as counsellors, we are the tools of our trade, uh, very much like teachers as well. And, and anyone who's helping or working with other people in that kind of role where you the relationship's important. Mm. So um, with counselling, you're going into the room, you're making a therapeutic relationship with your clients and you take all that you are into that. So some counselling approaches, um, some people specialise in a particular theory, like person-centred or psychodynamic, but the courses that I teach on are integrative. So we teach a number of different theories and the counsellors that are training weave these theories together into their approach. So the teaching intervention helps them to become much more aware of who they are as people and therefore what their main values and beliefs are, how their culture or their families shape them and how that leads them to select different theories what the theories are they're drawn to. Mm. And what, so have you got an example of that, maybe for, probably drawing from your own, you know, sort of experiences? Yeah, so um, with the patchwork of practice, you can look at different areas of your life or you can look at um, something that's uh, caught your attention with the teaching that you're doing and you create a patch about that. That can be anything, um, like it could be a poem, it could be a piece of writing... Uh, you could draw something, do some art, something that expresses what that experience means to you. Mm. And you put together all these different patches and look at the themes that are emerging. So for me, uh, if we just talk about my dad dying, um, I did a piece of reflexive writing about that. And then I read back the writing and looked at the themes that were coming out. Um, the idea of growing up in a village, country village, I looked in detail about what it was that I got from that experience. So I got the safety and security of being in that community. Um, I got the uh, sense that there was the culture of growing things, of farming. Uh, from when my dad died, I got that huge sense of loss and the importance of attachment and what it's like when you lose attachments. So those things all shape, there's, there's many more, but those things shaped who I am. So when I come to look at my counselling approach, I think in terms of attachment, I think how important it is to settle down into the session, to, to make a relationship with that person, to help them feel comfortable. I become the secure base for a while while they're in counselling. How do you do that then? I um, respond to what I notice, what I'm picking up from them. I try and, I am myself. I, I, I'm naturally kind of a warm person, I think. I'm trying to be friendly and welcoming. And I give them space and time to talk about what it is that's brought them there. Mm -hmm. And then I, I particularly pick up on words that they use um, or phrases they use and I'll get them to tell me the story of that, a little bit more about that. Mm. Um, and tuning into any signals about if somebody's a bit more quiet and withdrawn, I'll be more um, active in helping them to bring out their story. If somebody's talking a lot and the emotions are spilling out easily, 
then I'll probably give them more structure and, and help them uh, build a shape to what they're telling me. Mm. How do you do, so someone's quite, say, I suppose let's go go with me, for example, because I, I don't mind having a chat. Um, I feel as though, I, I don't know, you could probably tell me, but I, I feel as though I can listen, but at the same time I can be quite chatty. So would, would, would I be someone that would need a bit more structure or how would you balance that? When you say chatty, I think what you mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think what you mean by that word is that you could talk about things and talk about what's happened and events and and so on. And maybe not as easily um, get into the emotions underneath that experience. I, I quite like how you phrase that, though, then, because this is something which I've been working on is, because I think you said, tell me if, you, if I'm wrong. So it's like, it's not saying that you're right and you're making them feel at ease with the response of that, just in case you have got it completely wrong. You've got to get out of jail free card, which is quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. Um, as someone who has to do that. And also it puts you in, as as the person that I'm talking to, it puts you in the central position of I'm listening to you. Mm. I'm not telling you. Mm. I'm trying to bring forth things from you. Um, so I, so you might tell me about, um, you know, how you started um, in teacher training yourself and you might tell mm. me the events that led you to there. And mm. so if you're telling me a lot of detail, I might ask you then, so when that happened, what was that like for you? What did that really feel like? Well, I remember, I remember it's actually, you know, something a bit more personal than this because I remember actually having a session with you when I was only 18 Mm. and um I don't know whether you remember it or yeah, not, but I do, yeah it was um it was quite a you know I've got to be careful what I say here because I'm sure my mum will be listening to this one but um it was quite um a difference in the time of my life because obviously moving down to London I think it was going to university was obviously like you said going from a small village to down to the big smoke and not really knowing anyone and being in a very, very sort of small, comfortable bubble um, yeah, was quite a big shock. And so, like, I suppose I felt quite... I don't mind, obviously, telling telling people about my emotions either. I think it's quite good to be vulnerable now. But um, I think, you know, at that time in life, a lot of changes. You know, you think you've got the, the world in front of you and you're the king and you know everything and you don't really know anything, do you, at 18? But, um, you know, then you come down and actually you put on this bravado. But actually, you know, underneath it all... You sort of craving for those. You 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 forget sort of how comfortable you might be. I think you might take it for granted. I think that's mm. the the thing when you when something's there around you all the time, mm. it's so familiar that you almost don't notice it until it's mm. not there. Tell me a bit about like when you know your father died. How how do you think that re- impacted you in terms of your confidence and and growing up as a teenager? Because that must have been quite hard. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a huge shock, as I've said. Um, mm. So we had a very familiar routine. Um, because my granddad lived with us, I think mm. the, the way my mum tells us it, that her and my dad uh, wanted time on their own, but he was always there. So they arranged it that my dad would come home from work around 6, 6.30 every day. Mm. She would have the children in the bath and he would come into the bathroom and they would have that time together talking through what had happened in the day. And it was um, a time that I remember, a special time. 
So this day, um, it got to six o'clock and he didn't come home and uh, the the phone rang instead and that it was the hospital saying that he'd been taken into hospital and he'd collapsed at a meeting around four o'clock in the afternoon um, and he was dead when he got to hospital. Mm. And it was um, a viral pneumonia that his, his lungs just hemorrhaged and um, he, he couldn't fight the infection. So at first, uh, there was a huge minimisation of that. We were sent to school the next day as though nothing had happened. And um, then I just remember in my teens just feeling I didn't fit in because I hadn't got my dad. And I think I was almost uh, uh, stunted in my development, as it were, the shock. I didn't really grow up. I, I always felt different to all the other people. And they were, you know, going out, having parties and um, starting off making relationships and so on. And and I was just almost frozen in time. Uh, That's what it was like and difficult to concentrate and things. So I threw my light, myself into sport and that really helped. Played hockey and netball, tennis, a lot of gymnastics. How do you... um... How did you use these experiences within your own research in terms of to better your own life? How did the understanding of patches help help you, uh, you know, form your values and beliefs? Um, I, I understood the importance of attachments and um, helping other people to form those attachments within the therapeutic relationship, mm. but also to look at, um, when I looked at how my stories had shaped who I was, then I, that helps me with working with clients and, mm. and helping them look at what shaped them to, to become who they are. And a big part of that is also the systemic side of my, my work. Um, so when I look at my growing up in that village, I'm thinking of culture, I'm thinking of the farming kind of culture, growing your own food and, and how that helps you. I'm thinking of uh, groups in school, the times when you feel you don't fit in, what that experience is like. Mm. And yeah, other people's experience of that may be very, very different from mine, but that Mm. raises my curiosity. This is what, you know, it was like for me. I know myself what's influenced me. So now I'm more curious about knowing what's influenced you and how you Mm. think that shaped your development. I think Mm. knowing myself better brings me more confidence because what might not have come through in my expert um my talking about that time in my teens was how I totally lost my confidence Mm. I really and and then further loss going through divorce you know I I really my confidence was rock bottom Mm. and I think getting to know how I've been these things have shaped me has improved my confidence a a lot well I suppose it's it's quite um good to know about the theory but what about in terms of in practice now because I'm just thinking if you're a young kid and you know young kids nowadays have loads of different problems don't they um I'm sure a different set of problems to to when you know even I was growing up and and yourself how do you think with your research you could help these this this generation of, of children growing up in terms of you know, you talked about low self-esteem or low self-confidence. I'm sure every kid goes through that. Yeah. 
but what advice could you give in terms of like some practices that you could you know give them or advice it's difficult because uh i think as you're growing up the world around you is your world around you and everything that's just how it is i think very often and certainly for myself i never looked outside of I never took that step outside of myself to look at myself. Mm. This this is what I've done through the research. I've taken a step outside and had a look at myself and um, almost been able to study myself from that kind of meta position and look at what shaped me. But when, when you're in that, when you're in that growing up place, just like you said, of going to London, mm. it's not until something happens that tells you I'm not quite happy here, mm. that you would actually even think to look around mm. at what it is that's not working in your life. Mm. So I think it's difficult to give advice as to what you would do because people won't notice things until they feel unhappy. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because um, there's a couple of things when I felt sort of, especially when I was at uni, I started writing a, di a diary in a journal. And I started reflecting on the day in terms of um, a bit of a force field analysis, I used to call it. So I used to have like pros and cons, like what did a good day look like? And then all the pros of it, all the cons of it. And then it gave me a bit more of a, an understanding of where my emotions should actually be at. Um, and then like I, I think when I stopped playing rugby, there was a big void there for me because that had been a big part of my life. It had been six hours a week and, you know, playing with my mates at the weekend and, and then had kids and then all your life turns upside down, doesn't it, when you have kids? And you don't realise until you have them. And then um, I had to do, a, I trained in some mindfulness, for example. And then, uh, you know, but other people do other things. I'm not saying that mindfulness is a cure, but it certainly helped me sort of reflect on uh, insight in terms of who I am. And then... Yes, that's something I started when I was doing the research, actually. Mm. But what was it that led you then to... Um, start writing that reflective diary? I think it was just there was something I was really unhappy with, but I think underneath it all, I think I was just missing... I was missing my parents. I was missing my brother. I was missing all my mates who had all gone up to... They all went to Northern Unis as well, and they'd all go across. Because, like, in the North, it's quite... It's not very far, is it? Like, if you want to go to Manchester to Leeds, it's an hour away. If you want to go to Sheffield, it's an hour away. Where, if you're in London, there's actually probably... There's people who probably go to London, but if they don't go to London, they're probably in Exeter or they're in Birmingham or they're in Manchester. So it's quite a long way just to go for a night out. You know, in, in London, you could go for a night out and travel an hour and you wouldn't bat an eyelid. Whereas you say, oh, I'm going out for a night in Leeds in Manchester, you'd be like, oh, that's, that's a bit far, isn't it? You know, you, don't, you wouldn't really, but actually it's not that bad, is it? So so you noticed that void with um, missing your, your brother and missing your, the, the life that you'd had up north. Um, mm. And that led you to to feel notice your unhappiness, and that led you to then reflect more on that. So I think that's backing up what I was saying that people very often, um, you know, go through life with its ups and downs, and accept this is my life. And it's not till something happens and you notice that you have that noticing um, that you start to explore it a little bit more. So maybe one of the things that young people could be aware of um, is to appreciate and accept and be grateful for 
the things that are going well in the life and not wait until there's a problem. Actually, that's a really interesting question about happiness. Do you think that... Um, can happiness be something that just is or do you have to work at your happiness? Like, how? Do, what is your relationship with how happy you are or what, what is happiness? Um, big question. Big question. <laughs> so I'm thinking on my feet now and I, um, I'll say my thought process out loud, if that's okay. Yeah. I am aware that I'm... I'm in a quite a content place in my life. Mm. And so I would say, what is it that leads me to say that? It leads me to think that I'm content. Mm. And I think the, the biggest thing has been uh, to be more accepting of the way things are in my life. Mm. And I think there's, I've come to a place where I'm feeling quite settled and I'm accepting some of my own uh, shortcomings, maybe. I don't know what, what they would be, but I get I can get stressed and worried about things. So instead of building st more stress and worry about being worried, I would mm. probably think, oh, there I am again, worrying, you know, and I would <laughs> I would then try and put that down. But I I am much better at noticing what I appreciate than I ever used to be noticing the small things like when the sun shines or noticing a, a you know something growing or noticing a, a great conversation with somebody and I think I've got a lot better at noticing what's going well actually that's an interesting one because obviously we're talking about relationships here but um when you're forming a relationship I think it's probably um it's probably fair to say that you read other people whether you feel comfortable with someone else in terms of like, and that will form a trust and a bond. I mean, I don't know all the scientific language, but um, I suppose where am I going with this? It, you sort of mentioned something and it really tr it triggered it. So when you have this thought of uh, doubt and you're, you're slightly anxious and you're like, oh, no, I'm getting more anxious or no, I'm getting more worried and more worried. <laughs> yeah, in a vicious circle. Have you got a little trigger in your mind that now goes, right, I'm thinking like this. I don't need to go there because I know that it's just my mind taking me to that place. But I don't need to go there because actually I don't need to worry because it doesn't actually matter. Yeah, I notice uh, when I'm starting to uh, have a conversation with myself about maybe something that could go wrong or um, thinking, um, worrying about something that's... Uh, you know, I've got to do the next day at work. And I notice I start to have a conversation with myself. What if this or what if that? And I also notice that I feel tense in my stomach. And that is a big sign. And, and then what I've become better at is once I notice that, then I'll do something different. I won't stay with that. It might How, still what, go on. What, what, what do you do different? I, I go outside. I, I go for a walk. I do something physical and I try and get into nature. Are you bringing back those sort of young memories of when you played sport to try and get rid of those thoughts about your dad? Yeah, maybe I'm right. I am, yeah. And and I think that this uh, research that I've done and when I said it's getting to know me better, mm. then part of it was really quite a surprise at just how much I was into nature 
as a young girl and unusually so. So if it was a thunderstorm and raining, I'd go outside just to feel the elements. It was something like being out in nature, feeling the elements. That made me feel alive and made me feel okay. In terms of, let's go back to your research, is I'm trying to sort of uh, understand maybe uh, what you actually, what, the, what did the results show and were there any different groups or... Uh, of people that demonstrated different things and what was the impact of it? Yeah, the, the results showed that the way of creating these patchworks over two years through the, the course, the students create these patches that I explained about and they um, met in a group. They did that individually. Then they met in a group of four people. They shared what they'd created and the group discussed it and gave them other perspectives um, for example, uh, one student um, had this really angry feeling that was coming up for something that had happened in her private life and she realised she always gets angry in this way. Mm. And she thought had the thought to try and do something different with the anger. So she drew an angry wolf mm. and she took that to the group to explore and the group was saying, this is a positive way, a much more positive way of dealing with anger because um, a lot of ways that people deal with anger can be self-harm or it can be food-related or it can be going out and, you know, extreme of harming someone else, you know, if they're not harming themselves. So firstly, she'd got more insight into her anger, but also other ways of dealing with it. So that's the process. And what was coming back from the students was um, how much this process of the patchwork was um, giving them insight into who they were as people. They were coming to know themselves better and in knowing themselves better, then they were becoming better at forming relationships with clients and they were becoming more aware of what theoretical concepts they're drawn to and how to weave those into their own approach. That's it. That's really interesting, actually. Um, I just, I want to just pick on that because emotional intelligence, um, insight, knowing oneself, reading nonverbals, um, and in the moment, having a a positive, meaningful engagement with someone else, so that they are they feel alive, they feel connected with that with that person. How do different people do that? I think it is what I've been saying of knowing yourself knowing how you would respond in a certain situation, mm. um, responding, mm. seeing what you get back from the other person, mm. noticing what's coming up in you in response to that other person. So it's this back and to, back and to. But there's always that part of of me as a counsellor and, and what these other people were saying is when you know yourself better and you know your usual responses you're also partly outside of yourself and watching yourself at the same time mm. as being in the relationship. So you're in two positions, if you can, at the same time. But you, you, when you're in that relationship and you're in that, what you'd call a dialogical conversation, as well as seeing the impact of what I am saying on you, I'm mm. also noticing how you might be seeing me Mm. And I'm also thinking about what are we creating together here? Mm. It's uh, Conversations are co-created. So, you know, how are we interacting to create this together? And if it's not working, 
what could I do differently? How could I shift my position a little bit and um, maybe adjust? And the, with the research, the students were telling me because they knew themselves better, they were more uh, agile at, at shifting position. They're more relationally responsive um, in that therapeutic relationship. When you talk about shifting, what, how does that look? Is it is it positionally or is it what you say to them? If you say something or do you just, uh, I don't, what do you mean by that exactly? By shifting, um, maybe uh, talking in a different way, um, taking the focus away from maybe if I'm talking too much, I might shift to say, so what, you know, as you're listening to me, what's coming up for you as you as you listen to me? I may notice that the person in front of me has gone a bit quiet and so I'm thinking, oh, this is, they've, for some reason, not been able to be as engaged. So what can I do differently to bring forth more engagement from that other person? Mm. I suppose different in tones is quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't realise, like, the Thai dialect is like, if you, you could say the same word, but you go down and then up, and if you go up and then down, or you go up, down, up, or just the same, is is four different words even though because of the way they say it yes that's fascinating I, isn't it and i thought that was amazing like you know another language if you and in our language if you say a word it means a certain thing but i would pick you up on that Al. yeah go on then you say a word and it means the same thing i would mm. i would disagree with that and um i'm getting these ideas from somebody called gregory bateson who um wrote a lot about the importance of context so okay. so different words will mean different things to different people in a different context. Mm. So um, without knowledge of what the context is, then communication doesn't have any, any meaning. The meaning comes out of the context. So if I use the words um, a bleeding heart, mm. just, just to illustrate this point. So Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. A bleeding heart in a counselling room may mean I'm bereft, I'm... Um, you know, lost my my dearest relationship. My I'm really really sad. A bleeding heart in a um A and E room mm. might mean somebody stabbed me. And a ble yeah yeah bleeding heart in a garden is there's a plant called a bleeding heart. So <laughs> you know it's you've yeah you've, that's true. So language is very dependent on context or meaning of words is very dependent on context. Do you think that's do you think that's probably part of the problem with social media now? It could be because you you you're just getting a snapshot, aren't you? Say on Twitter or Facebook, you'll get a snapshot of something and you don't know the context always. Mm. And it can be a problem in relationships because if we come from different landscapes of growing up, mm we'll interpret things differently. And it's interesting as well, like, you, you listen to, like, the whole... I, I don't really want to bring up coronavirus, but you listen to the science, the scientists behind it and they'll start talking and everyone's like, we've got to listen to the scientists because they're the only ones who can make an informed decision, right? Well, if you're sort of semi-rational and you can actually understand more than a bite size of, of information, you think, well, actually, this needs a bit more substance to it because there's lots of factors that are considered. And you start listening to them and you're like... This, this is going on and on and on and on. And this is what scientists do, don't they? They go to the nth degree about everything so that 
because they want to make sure they've probably covered all bases so that they don't get scrutinised by the media for saying the wrong thing. And they give you um, all the detail. And they want to give you all the detail, but th- that's that's half the problem because, like, Twitter's only, like, you know, 200 characters. Instagram stories are only limited to a minute. And I suppose, like, with social media now, a lot of people are listening to that because, say, for example, right, you're on your phone. I'm not sure exactly how long you spend on different apps on your phone, but I guarantee for someone who's in their sort of millennials, Gen Y, 20s, 30s, early 40s, who have sort of grown up nearly with social media and a phone and all the rest of it, they'll spend probably an average five hours a day on their phone. Of those of those five hours, they'll probably be spending a half of it on social media. I mean, I use my phone for everything, banking, um, watching, listening to the news or uh, doing my work. There's loads of apps now that I've got for work. And so, you know, you just live life on your phone. And I just wonder, like, whether we've lost something from when we were forming relationships when I only had a Nokia 3210 and there wasn't social media and it was like a brick and I could only just ring people up. And I used to, like, ring up my mates and be like, right, I've got the number. It's 0161, you know, 439, blah, 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 blah. And it's like... Right, I'll meet you at three o'clock. We're going to play football down at the rec. And and then you just turn up and you're like, please turn up, please turn up. I don't want to be that kid that, you know. And then, and then you know, everyone turned up because they had to honour the word. They didn't go, oh, I'm just running 10 minutes late because of the traffic or yeah. I've had a better deal or do you know what I mean? And you've had to skive. Like you had to honour your word. And when you had a, a, when you had a moment with that person, it wasn't over Skype, it wasn't over Zoom, it wasn't over a dating app, it wasn't over, you know, Instagram. It was a face-to-face. Because even this now, like, I don't feel... I feel like we're having a conversation, but I sort of almost feel slightly removed, you know, in front of a screen. And I just worry whether we've whether there's something lost there, which is why it's so important to still have that face-to-face connection. Yeah, I think if you're on a screen like this, you have to work a little bit harder at the expressions because I've no, you know I feel I do feel connected to you through this screen I feel like um you know the way you're nodding and the the laughter and then your eyebrows and so on you're in you've got an expressive face but I think the the danger is that you could actually uh, use the screen as though you're watching television and mm. I could sit here with a blank face and just as just as a passive observer rather than engaging in conversation. No, it's true, isn't it? Um, I, I think it's what's really important now is sort of move on slightly to the what does the future of relationships look like for the next generation? So how does it... I mean, obviously, you know, you've got three kids. What What's it like, do you think, for them growing up and, and their children? Yeah, I think, like you say, social media's got a, a big part to play and... Uh, what I've noticed is that very often there's a comparison being made. So you might be um, comparing a lot of the pictures that I see that that my nephews and nieces and my children and were putting on, you know, through the 20s. It's, it's, it's how they look and how other people look. And you're presenting this image of uh, perfection almost. Uh, and then I think... Does that? I'm wondering. Does that make it harder when you make relationships? Are you still trying to look for something, um, the perfect image of what your relationship is, and um, it's more public, I think, 
than it probably was. It's certainly it's much more public than it was when I made my relationships. And um, I think that's harder then. There's more pressure. Um, but these are just my opinions. And yeah. for every person that I'm talking about that does that, that compares, oh, so-and-so's got so many likes for this image and I've only got these number of likes. You know, for for all those people that do that, there'll be some people that, that don't bother so much with social media or just use it for joining groups and so mm. on. I think how it was originally set up, though, was actually the right purpose. Like, it was connecting people that you hadn't maybe necessarily connected with and seeing them from afar. So, say, for example, like... You know, my wife's uh, grandma's up in Yorkshire. We don't get to see her very much. She's on Facebook, just like my grandma is, and she's shielding. And then it's great for her because she sees pictures of us and we can chat on, you know, on video stream with her now. And I think it was that that was what social media was really great at. I think, you know, if you if you watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, it's got a whole nother argument towards actually they're manipulating data, changing human behaviours, this idea of perfection of what you were talking about, I think can be quite a dangerous thing. Um, like, you know, women wearing, not wearing makeup. I'm like, yes, thank you. I, I, I don't, I don't care. I'd like to just see who you are and then get to know the substance behind the, you know, the, the person who I'm talking to. I, I, I'm not bothered about, you know, the food you're eating or the type of clothes that you, you, you want to show off or your bags or, or anything really materialistic. Cause I just don't care. Um, and I, I just wonder whether, whether um, you know, we talk about forming relationships for younger kids now. Um, I, I do, I do feel as though it's definitely, you know, sort of my part of my responsibility in in loco parentis status uh, to try and help them, uh, not tell them, but guide with guided discovery, try and get them to open their eyes up to like meaningful conversations and connections. And making friends for the right reasons. I think maybe connecting through interests as well. Because um, mm. you mentioned sport and how important that was to you. And it certainly was to me. Um, so that was where I connected with people that had similar interests to me. Which is mm. going to be a good start to a relationship. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, whether it's sport, music, um, whatever the interest is. Mm. But... I, I think it's just such a wide range of human humanness um, mm. around. And, you know, I've only got m my experience of relationships through my work. I, I see a, lot, a wider experience of, of relationships. I think it's it's more about be, having the confidence and the courage to um, follow your own uh, path to what a relationship is rather mm. than seeing something on a film or seeing what other people are doing, you, you form the relationship that, that helps meet the needs that you have and, mm. and gives you that space to share your own interests with somebody else mm. and to share that intimacy with somebody. Well, um, we're going to try and wrap this up now into some golden nuggets. Um, it's, it's, it's never easy, this, because I say this and then, like, everyone's like, I can't give you a few. I've got, yeah, like, 50. Yeah. Or they go, I can't give you a few, I'll give you one. And I'm like, yeah. all right, well, just say whatever. I don't mind, actually. Anything would be good. Um, so you got anything to help, you know, young people with forming relationships? What, what would you say? Um, following on from what I just said about 
um, knowing yourself and I think that was what we touched on earlier, the importance mm -hmm. of, of knowing who you are as a person and noticing the things that make you happy, not necessarily always noticing the problems. Mm -hmm. So accepting there will be some problems that things aren't easy, um, having much more of an acceptance of um, those things that are they're a little bit difficult, but um, having the confidence to to be live your life in the way you want to live it and um, I think when you do start to make relationships there's, there's a lot of talk about compromise mm. and um, this is my own view um, compromise to me is going to be helpful some of the time mm. uh, but I, I often feel it means it's a veiled way of saying you're going to miss out on something <laughs> that uh, <laughs> There's always going to be somebody losing out. And I think it's probably a, a better way to look at it is to think of collaborating and mm. to work as a team with whoever you, you're in a relationship with. And that collaboration, you know, talk about where you're going together, what it is you want to get out of what, whatever the activity is or whatever the relationship is. Um, and how are we going to do that? Is that weeness? rather than compromise, which to me is person A wants something, person B wants something. Neither's going to get what they want, so they have to find mm. something in the middle. Mm. So collaboration is a big thing. And that other thing I said about context, we, we're all so different in our upbringings, in our cultures, um, in our family backgrounds. And... Mm. You know, I've found from my research that all of these things shape who we are and how we see the world. And they shape the jobs you choose. They shape for the counsellor the, the theories that he or she uses in, in their work. So I would think that it's important to know your own context and know how that's shaping you. Mm. And then be accepting of difference. That other people's way of doing things is... Mm a different way it's not better or worse it's different and having that acceptance of difference well look um thanks so much for coming on anyway bev it's been a pleasure and uh yeah it's always always nice to chat to a friendly face as well so um especially another northerner <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's lovely to do this alan um to be a part of what you're creating i think it's a fantastic thing that you're doing i've listened to a few of the podcasts and these these tips that you're um, distilling out of all these conversations, I think uh, it's a great idea, and I hope uh, you get a lot more for for young people to listen to as well. <laughs>